Hello everyone. Thank you so much for being a dedicated listener to the Mindful Initiative podcast. Before we listen to this week's podcast, I wanted to let you know that we will be offering the Compassion Cultivation Training course again from July 10th to August 28th. This is an 8-week program that was developed at Stanford University to manage your stress, anxiety and challenges in your life. If you are interested in enrolling for this course or to know more about it, you can visit www.compassioncultivation.in. Thank you so much. And now on to this week's episode with James Wood. Welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. Today we are very privileged to have amongst us James Wood. James is an author and also a spiritual teacher. At the age of 33, after many years of study, he woke up to reality and has dedicated his life to the awakening of beings everywhere. Originally, James studied philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin and then transformational studies with Richard Moss. He has combined his education experience and experience to express a modern integrated vehicle for others to use as a means of growth in consciousness. He is the author of 10 Paths of Freedom: Awakening Made Simple. It's realizing your true nature in the moment through a relationship with what arises. So that what arises could be thoughts, feelings, or sensations. So what I teach is a conscious relationship to that content. And that is really what meditation is. Meditation is a conscious relationship with what arises. The judgment arises really in that confusion, saying that the word is the thing and it it limits us. It shuts down our sense of ourselves. That's what ego is. Thank you so much, James, for being part of our show. Welcome. Thank you. So these interviews, we begin knowing a little bit about our guests, especially about their upbringing, and if spirituality was part of their upbringing, and uh, if it has. in some form or other continue to be part of their lives. Yes, well I uh my father was agnostic and my mother had a Christian science background. I don't know if you know about that church in the United States. But uh the Christian Science Church focused on healing and practical prayer, you might say. So I was raised to use prayer proactively and uh that's informed my path and did you continue to be in the same faith or did it help uh, 
towards your awakening in any way, this idea of prayer, or it manifested in different forms for you as you grew up? Yes. Well, there's a teacher named Joel Goldsmith, who's still, I think, widely read. He was a Christian science practitioner. A Christian science practitioner would pray for people for healing. And he did that for a while, and he had his own awakening and eventually created his own form called the infinite way. And so I, when I went off to college, my mother gave me a copy of his book, the art of meditation. And I think that was a big influence on me. And although his work is Christian, it uses Christian language. It's not in any way orthodox the way I see it. It's really, it's a form of spirituality that uses Christian language. And it, I never felt hemmed in by that. So, you know, I studied Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta and many other spiritual disciplines as well. But that was how it started, I think. I think the beginnings help and influence us in many ways. And then we look back at our childhood. You know, there's something interesting that I read in your book. You talked about meditation and also prayer in, in different forms. In your book, uh, which was written a while ago, you talk about meditation practices different than meditation, right? One is a goal, one is a journey. But you mentioned about being awakened as well. So is the meditation journey leading to awakening? So that's my first question. And then if that is awakening, what is meditation? Those are good questions. So you're referring to chapter seven in my book. That is correct. It's called Meditation. There's a section in that chapter on prayer as well. And I emphasize in there, and this really is informed by Joel Goldsmith and my earlier experience, I think, that really prayer and meditation are no different. They're just approaching conscious relationship from a different angle, if you will. So a conscious relationship would be it's realizing your true nature in the moment through a relationship with what arises. So that what arises could be thoughts, feelings, or sensations. So what I teach is a conscious relationship to that content. And that is really what meditation is. Meditation is a conscious relationship with what arises. So the process you're talking about or the practice of meditation is really it includes learning how to sit, maybe, you know, posture, breathing, how to focus one's attention, things like that, that are structural and geared toward getting you to a place where you can notice what's arising within you. And usually it's mental content is what's noticed, a stream of thoughts and so on. When we first learn how to sit, for example, we really don't have much of a conscious relationship with that content yet. We're all somewhat conscious, obviously. We have to be conscious to function, but we usually aren't aware of the thoughts that we have in a conscious way, at least not fully. So there's the process of becoming conscious, and then there is consciousness itself, that conscious relationship that I was talking about. Those really technically speaking, are different. And it's interesting, you said, you suggested that one was a goal and one was a journey, I think. You know, it's interesting, it's always a journey. I would say it's not a static endpoint. 
it may seem that way and it's fine to look at it that way maybe, but my experience of it is it's constantly new, constantly, in some sense, beautiful. When we make it conscious, it it's like its meaning speaks to us in a way that we can't realize unless we become conscious in that way. Otherwise, the thoughts capture us and basically we're scared and feel separate from life. Thank you so much. And I think uh, the idea of it being static will stop your growth. And, and, and I completely agree with that aspect that both of them are helping us in one way or the other. I don't know if you can have more awakening than an awakening, but we're moving in that direction. <laughs> That's what I feel. And one of the things that you mentioned is that through the process of being aware, there's this consciousness, which is this constant stream that's going on in our mind. That is our consciousness, that eventuality. This awareness, one of the things that comes in the Advaita uh, philosophy is this idea of Shravanan, which is listening, then Mananan, which is reflecting, and then the third is the idea of Nididhyasanam. Something similar is in Buddhism as well, in, in both traditions. Now, the first is Shravanam, you know, you, you listen or learn from your teachers, whether that's now through audio, video, or reading, whatever that is. And then you're reflecting on, on those thoughts, which is somewhat that you mentioned, because that's how you're becoming aware of the consciousness. But the third aspect is, which is where I think the idea of awakening comes in. And my question is around the faiths, because each faith has a different understanding of that. Growing up, you had a Christian faith and then you read other traditions or read about Buddhism and, or let's say Eastern philosophies or Eastern religions. How do you look at this last phase when awakening happens? How do you live that in your real life is really my question. Because one says there is this emptiness, one says there is the soul and the other says there is heaven, right? So all that is different. Once you have that understanding, we have to live our real life, right? We have to do things. We have to have an action-oriented life. Now, my question to you is, with different traditions and different faiths, how do you find that intersection, that one point? Or do you need to find that? Yeah, that, that is a good question. I was lucky because I wasn't indoctrinated in any religion when I was growing up. Like I said, my father was agnostic. And so he was kind of an intellectual and valued critical thinking and open-mindedness. My mother, again, you know, taught me about a certain kind of prayer that is similar to meditation that I mentioned. So I never felt like, like I was hemmed in by any, when you're saying faith, like a religious faith. I never felt hemmed in by that. And so, you know, I, I felt free to explore. And in university, you mentioned I studied philosophy. I just explored and um, I was fortunate that I took an Indian philosophy class and was able to study Buddhist philosophy and, you know, Shankara and, and others. And, and it really opened me up to this I guess, appreciation that there's one truth 
and just many different ways to access that truth. So I, I don't know, it may be a, a hurdle for some people, I suppose, you know, you were saying, I think you said, um, you know, it could be emptiness, it could be the soul, it could be heaven, I think. I think the easy answer is that they're really all talking about the same thing. And I can't prove that, but it's a much, I find that a much easier answer because why make it complicated, you know? (laughs) So is it true? I mean, is that simple answer true? I would say it is. I think the ultimate truth is actually simple in a way. It's, it, it is a one truth. It has a certain absolute nature that when we realize it, it's evident and it's basically who we are. Uh, this brings me really back to Ramana Maharshi, who just said, you know, to whom does this arise? Who am I? And that when you realize who you are, and he would, I think he used the term Atman, right? Which could be self with a capital S, or I'm not sure if you are, um, when you said soul, I don't know if you're using it in that way, but we wake up to that and it's just who we are and is the fundamental nature of reality. And then how do we live that? Excellent question. For me, honestly, it's the Zen saying before awakening, chop wood, carry water. After awakening, chop wood, carry water. It's really no different. It's just to whom does that chopping and carrying arise? Before awakening, we imagine ourselves to be I would use the term ego, but it's a separative and separate feeling self. After awakening, one realizes oneself as consciousness and that those are very different. And yet the same stuff is arising, if you will. There's still thoughts, there's still experiences, thoughts, feelings, and sensations still arise. It's just who I am is different. Yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, again, I couldn't agree more that they're all one truth. They're all just one, uh, eventually, or eventuality is one. But the spiritual paths may be different, and how you get there may be different. And uh, I think that's where, and something that interested me a little bit more about you is uh, when you talk about morality, like when spiritual path and morality intersect or they come to a common ground that is where some of the questions come in questions come in because based on my faith or whatever that faith being i'm I'm just using x as an example that i believe that this moral is right and that moral is right and somewhere we intersect and that's where the problems are coming in in the world today and The way I think about it is that I'm trying to avoid certain difficult questions. And that's one thing that you address when you talk about spiritual bypassing. So I want you to talk a little bit more about morality and spiritual bypassing, because I find both to be fascinating and both to be similar, but very different. Yeah. Well, usually I think spiritual bypassing usually is referred to a tendency for students of this work to 
skip the hard parts, skip difficult feelings and emotions and doing real work emotionally and so on. And instead affirming some of these more transcendent sounding precepts and so on and, and trying to live in them without really living in them. It's a form of dishonesty. It's like saying you're the king of Siam. There isn't even a Siam, is there? I think, but, uh, you know, it's one thing to say that it's another to literally be that. And so it is, we don't want to bypass that, but, you know, I couldn't help when I was hearing you introduce me in the beginning of the podcast, the thing saying, you know, James awakened to reality, I think is what's in there. And, um, you know, honestly, it sounds grandiose to me. The problem is the language often does sound grandiose. So that's kind of the nature of it. When we talk about absolute truth and reality, it sounds very grand. It kind of is. And yet where the rubber meets the road is how we live and how authentic we are as human beings. So the morality for me is very simple really in a way, you know, Jesus's followers asked him which commandments to follow. And he basically said, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple in a way. And it, it's because thy neighbor is thyself. The consciousness is the reality. So waking up in a way is, it's a simultaneous realization of self and other as one, not as two. There's still a functional difference, obviously, but the essential difference has been erased so that it allows us to love and to be compassionate. And um, I find really that what we're here to do is, is to realize the truth of who we are. And when we realize the truth, and you might call that God. So you, you can love that. And then, and then you find it in your neighbor and you love that. And when that comes alive in you, you automatically, I find, seek to relieve suffering in the other, so it's compassionate, and that becomes the basis for life, and it's, it's powerful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just talking about compassion, that's the next thing that I wanted to bring up, because each faith is helping us live our life better you know our, our journey small or long however long we are here for to simplify things for us so that we can enjoy we can be happy maybe i shouldn't say the word enjoy because you know that may mean different things but yeah just that you're happy through the process of living and, and simplifying the complexities that life throws at you and Compassion is a new thing that has been coming along for a long time. Uh, and uh, it's been part of the yogic philosophy. That's where I think the, the term first time came in from the 33rd Sutra of the Yoga Sutras in Patanjali, Karuna. And then, of course, the compassion studies have been a huge part in the last 10, 15 years. And science has started to take a look at it. What are your thoughts about labels because people have started putting more and more labels on things as if it's an honor to be spiritual religious 
and you know so many more new terms have come about and uh, the compassion is the new thing but if you listen to the Dalai Lama he says that's the only way that has been that's the only way for us to live because we live in a society that's so interconnected anything that you look at we can't do alone so just your thoughts about labels in our life and how do we move away from that so that we move towards the self with the capital S, the reality that, that you talk about. Yeah. Labels are necessary for us to live. We name things and the confusion arises when we, we have the name, which is really a thought that we're having and we confuse that with the reality. So it could be a gender term. It could be a religious term. It could be a political term. The thing is, these are just functional assessments, but isn't who we are in our essence. See, who we are in our essence cannot be captured by words. We could point to it, like to say the self or the soul. You know, you use the term emptiness earlier. I'm suggesting they're all pointing at the same essence that cannot be spoken. So for meditating, we're present in watching the stream of thoughts go by. And the realization is basically is that who I am is that which is aware of the thinking, the labels. I mean, in a way you could say it, when you're meditating, it's just a stream of labels going by and then all their relationships and so on. And I don't know why I'm thinking of the movie, The Matrix, where they'll sit and watch the code go by on the screen. I don't know. You know, there's a realization that, oh, that stuff, you know, that's not who I am. That's just code. Thou art that which witnesses that. And yet that's not who you are. And it's beautiful, you know. It then becomes a functional play. I mean, the word Lila, uh, you know, comes to me, that you know, a play of life and that the purpose of life, one could say, is to love one's neighbor. And I think it is universal. Yes, Jesus said that. And yet I think you mentioned the Yoga Sutras and um, Buddhism. I mean, it's universal. And His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, you're speaking of, I believe, has said, my religion is compassion. So that's the part where we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we, we realize the truth of who we are. And then we share it. And it doesn't matter if the person you're sharing it with really understands it or can relate in the same way because it's beautiful and it it's fulfilling. It provides a moral basis as well, I would suggest. And that uh, there's a thought experiment that I've come up with very briefly. Basically, you think about someone you love very much, your grandmother, a child, could even be a pet that you love very much. And the question is, would you want harm to come to that? person or creature? And the answer is no. You can imagine it. And the thing is, you don't have to think about it. It's in us. We naturally, when we love, when we truly love, we seek not to harm. And we seek to relieve that suffering. So because it doesn't involve thought, I would say that when compassion, when you really boil compassion down to its essence, it's a functional capacity that we have as conscious beings to love one another, and it manifests as a certain kind of harmony 
that would also be morality is in how we treat each other. I think the real challenge for us as human beings is to switch from that code-based or mind-based way of functioning and identity to a spiritually based functioning and identity. And frankly, I think there's a lot of turmoil in the world right now, a lot of division and chaos and, and politically is, I haven't seen anything like this in my lifetime. I think part of that is the, the ego, that divided sense of self that creates a self and another, you know, us and them, you know, and, and creates divisions that it's putting up a fight, but it's a good fight. And if we're compassionate, then it's as if we're, we're not literally warriors. It's kind of a silly term maybe, but if we're compassionate love warriors, <laughs> this is the work we're here to do. And uh, I find it, it's not only fulfilling, but is a constant journey, as you put it earlier. It's not a static. I think something to ponder about as our relationships with other human beings evolve. And I love that thought experiment. And it made me think, what would it take for me to do this for any and every human being? I think in, in your book, you mentioned something. Another fascinating thing was that any thought is judgment. And uh, it made me think, it made me think. Because it is. But then I thought about my experiences of meditation, or at least the goals that I'm trying to run away from the thoughts, the clarity of, of the mind. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha, which is the second sutra in, in yoga, that the purpose of yoga is to still the mind or cessation of thoughts. And this judgment uh, in your Twitter feed, there was a tweet that you said, I had to look this up, what it really meant. Judgment changes like a passing phantasmagoria, while non-judgmental awareness abides in calmness. A natural curiosity about this will help you. Can you talk a little bit more about this whole process of the thought and the judgment and how this curiosity will help you? Because it's an evolving process of judgment of the thought. Yeah, another excellent question. I did study philosophy. It can get a little philosophical, a little bit technical, perhaps. But okay, so you you talked about labels. In philosophy, we don't assume that a table is a table, for example. So we call it that, but what is it actually? And that's anyone who studies philosophy would not be surprised by that line of inquiry. It's like many people would think, well, of course, a table is a table. But really, it's a name that we use. It's a concept. It's like, what is the thing independent of the concept that we have for that essential thing? And it's interesting to me. The short answer to that really is that the labels that we use, the thoughts that we use to describe our experience are functional. So calling a table a table is useful. We can put our coffee on it and have a conversation, you know, and communicate using words that are, as you said, basically labels, but that isn't essentially who we are. It is merely a description that we're using that has a functional function. <laughs> and what is the function? When it comes right down to it, 
it's for us to love one another. It's to connect on the level of being, which is our true nature. So I could say on the level of the self, as in Ramana Maharshi, we connect that way. The words cannot capture that relationship, but they can be used. The confusion is when we assume that the thought, in other words, the label is the thing. It's like the thought fuses with it. So the most obvious way this can be problematic is if we have a racial designation, for example, for someone that is, you know, some of them are, are not even socially acceptable. They're to call someone something, referring to their race that's an epithet, is very divisive and robs people of their humanity. And if you see cases, this is a bit dark perhaps, but it's important, I think. If you look at cases of genocide that have occurred in the past, what tends to happen first is the language changes and that these living beings become reduced to a term that's an ep a racial epithet, usually, and I'm saying that shows us very clearly how dangerous that is. So that's the basic thing we're looking at. That's the most extreme example of it. Sure, a table is a table, but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I could imagine your listeners are thinking, well, yeah, a table's a table. Who cares? I'm saying that if one really wants to wake up to this ultimate sense of, of truth and reality, then... The table is really just a thought passing by. So the word phantasmagoria uh, that I use there, that's what that is. It's like, a, it's like a dream that passes. It's like a parade of, a phantasmagoric parade of objects. And it isn't who we are, but we're witnessing it. That's the code, that matrix code going by. The judgment arises really in that confusion, saying that the word is the thing and it, it limits us. It shuts down our sense of ourselves. That's what ego is. That's we we think of ourselves as a certain thing. We think of other people as things, and we use the language in a way to reduce us to mental objects, basically. I don't know. It does sound a bit technical. It's really important, though, I think. And so for us to really love one another... If to refrain from judgment is to, in a sense, witness your divinity and my divinity in the moment. It's sacred. It's wordless. It's moral, as you put it. And then the the words and the thoughts are, they could be like birds flying by. It's beautiful. And yet there's this open sky of being. And that we're here to love and to enjoy, as you put it, to enjoy yeah, the universal language of love and seeing the the human in the human without the labels, without anything that's in front of you. I think the example of table is an excellent way to think about it, how everything is just a passing reality. And uh, yeah, there's so many more questions that keep coming to my mind, but you know, our time is limited here. So I want to ask a a final few questions. So these are questions that can be answered in one word, one sentence, or however long you want it to be. And this is just for our listeners to know you better. So the first question here is, tell us a childhood memory uh, that brings joy to your mind. 
I think when I, my first memory was uh, someone asked me how old I was and I held up three little stubby fingers. And I remember seeing that and that brings me joy. Why is that? Now, now I'm really curious because my daughter's three years old right now. And when you said three, you know, I was like, wow. So I'm really curious. Yeah, excuse me. It's my first memory and it's uh, very innocent, I think. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think it's, uh, I'm going to share with my daughter tomorrow. She won't remember anything, but yeah, <laughs> I'll share it. Our next question is a place uh, that you would like to travel to. Maybe you've been there before or never been there, but uh, would love to be. I would love to travel to India and to see the Himalayas before I die. Well, come to India. Yeah. yeah. One person in history that you would like to meet? Jesus. <laughs> okay. I was going to do a follow-up. I was like, why Jesus? And um, <laughs> it might be obvious, but may not be obvious. So now I'm curious why. Well, I can only pick one. I, there are many <laughs> others. I would love to meet Ramana Maharshi, um, mm. other spiritual leaders and lights and so on, sages. The Buddha taught for many years and people knew Ramana Maharshi and we have really good records of that. The records of Jesus' teaching are not as good. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about who he was and I would love to sit with him and have some tea and ask him some questions. It'd be wonderful. All right. I'm in. hope that happens. <laughs> so, a favorite book or a movie or a song. So I've given you three options. You can do all three or just one or two. Well, I just read a book uh, by William Faulkner, an American author that really just blew me away. I had never really, I had read him before, but I, until I read this book recently, it's called As I Lay Dying. It really moved me. I'm from the the South, the American South. And that's what he writes about. And uh, it was truly poetic. I felt like uh, his prose. So is it my favorite? I don't know. It is right now. Yeah, it's interesting. And then um, my favorite movie is usually uh, a movie called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Uh, Sergio Leone. It's epic and wonderful and strange. So I could go on about that for a long time. But that's my favorite movie, I think. We had the video cassette for Good, Bad, and the Ugly when I was growing up. And I think I've seen that film probably a thousand times. And the music doesn't go away when I think of that film. Yes, it has a certain timeless quality. I'm not sure why, but I've seen it many times. Yeah. And I, I want to say this real quickly. As a spiritual teacher, one might think my favorite works would be in a sense, spiritual in nature, and they are. And yet the fascination with our human experience is important. I mean, the, it's profound. There's a poetry there. Like, what is love? What is, you know, what is war? You know, what is conflict? I mean, we, we're looking at what it means to be human through a spiritual lens. And to me, I guess that's part of why I think some of my favorite works are works of poetry and beauty that describe the human condition in ways that may include darkness because that's the human condition. So I think it's important to understand that. 
and to not shrink away from it. Yeah, the suffering aspect, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that brings me to the, the last question. One hopeful wish for the future. Honestly, I don't have one. And briefly, I'll, the reason is I would say that the seeds of the future are planted now. That's what we have to realize. If we're going to have a peaceful future, we realize it now and that it appears as that. So world peace just happened. Sorry, maybe I forced you on that into that question. <laughs> but thank you. That's a great way to end this segment. But really, thank you. Thank you so much, James, uh, for your insights about life, about suffering in, in many ways, about labels, about compassion, and about love and living life. I learned so much, and, and I'm sure our audiences would also enjoy listening and, and learning from you. If they have to know more about you, can you tell us how, how can they reach you? Yes, uh, my website is jameswoodteachings.com. All right. And uh, Twitter is where I post. Uh, for social media, Twitter is where I'm focused. And uh, you can link to that from my website. Okay. We'll mention that as well. But again, thank you so much for being part of the show and uh, look forward to hearing more about you and, and hopefully reading more books from you in the future. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. If you like what we do, if you like listening to our shows, please share our podcast with your friends and family or on your social media. You can find us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs>